0: Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and OrthoEvidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bhandari from OrthoEvidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery
1: well mark welcome to another morning episode of ortho joe i have my trusty cup i hope you have yours um i, I, and I
0: absolutely do I think, uh, I think. <laughs> uh, and it's it's last night uh my wife and i we went we went to the jackson brown uh james taylor concert so oh wow we didn't get much sleep but it it was it was fantastic show so isn't it a nice
1: yeah. but isn't it amazing now to be out and seeing people I was at the Toronto uh, symphony Orchestra with one of our residents yes ortho residents mm-hmm. do listen to the symphony mm-hmm. folks just letting you know. Uh, he dragged me there and I was actually quite it was quite nice to see people it was there nice. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. So today we have um, another, uh, I think, a friend to both of us, a colleague to both of us. Uh, I've known uh, this individual, uh, Dr. Gerard Slavojian, who's an associate professor, a director of clinical research at the University of Maryland uh, School of Medicine. His interest is, uh, and his fellowship trained in all these areas, in complex trauma and upper extremity. Gerard, uh, welcome to the Ortho Joe Podcast. And just to note that you will get one of these amazing, amazing. Oh how is that possible how is that possible i'm impressed that you are just you're a true fan you're a true fan you've got this <laughs> it's awesome
2: i definitely you- am a true fan and uh this the by far the you know the highlight of every podcast is this this opening that you guys have and and you guys run a Top notch uh, shop and you guys already sent me out the cup. So I appreciate it. Well, that.
1: Gerard, I'd say, but would you happen to have the signature cup. Would you have the signature <laughs> cup? Because I can sign one for you and so can Mark. I mean, those things might go for oh two dollars somewhere, somewhere. Yeah. A buck fifty, anyway. maybe. A buck fifty, yeah. fair enough. Um, so if I could just maybe um to start up with an with an open-ended question to you, can you explain? To I guess our our audience and uh, the, our surgical community, um, what right now is interesting you uh, in the area of open fractures? What's kind of on your mind, and what are you looking at?
2: Yeah, thanks, Mo. That's that, that's a very broad question because I think, like all of us, um, we are still perplexed by why we can't get better results in open fractures and the you know the the fracture-related infections from these injuries and the increased non-unions and stuff haven't really been solved. Uh, so I'm interested in anything <laughs> that can help with that. And, you know, I think there's a handful of areas that have some promise uh, that we can kind of discuss. Um, but I, I don't know that there is a smoking gun right now. These are bad injuries. And uh, for those patients that are unfortunate to have, you know, this happened to them, uh, a good portion of them are going to have a complication
1: isn't it pretty similar to what we see in a lot of other areas where we you know I mean it's no it's no surprise to you that we spent decades trying to sort out hip fractures distal radius fractures proximal humus fractures you can go on and on and on um, but there is nothing that gives you that same sense of urgency as trying to uh, understand the complexity of, of, of an open fracture do you think the solutions that come are going to be direct operative solutions, or are they going to be part of that non-operative perioperative area?
2: I suspect it's probably a combination of the two. Uh, at times, I've been very um, depressed that you know maybe anything we do in the OR doesn't seem to matter, and and it's more of the patient and the perioperative care and stuff. But you know, I mean, flow has shown that uh, you know a simple intervention in the OR might actually have a difference uh, in terms of soap being harmful. We we know that um, you know perhaps even putting topical antibiotics in wounds may have a a difference. So I, I I do remain hopeful that there are some things that we will learn and and do at the time of surgery that will make big differences. And and I think you know looking in the last 10 years and particularly in the last five years, this whole orthoplastics concept that is being, I think, more formally described, I think is probably one of those uh, sort of surgical advances in terms of just better understanding um, how to care for the soft tissues at the same time as as the uh, bony injury. Yep.
0: Yeah. So, so you mentioned uh, antibiotics in terms of topical form, but I think most people worldwide would agree that if possible, we should be using IV antibiotics. And uh, as a matter of course, whenever we do one of these ortho Joe things, I always do a quick search on uh, jvjs.org and look look at what we've published recently. And uh, Mo, is your group at MAC uh, published in JVJS reviews, uh, a a really extensive review of antibiotic uh, therapy, 223 publications plus a very large number of surveys internationally and and that the broad conclusions were most publications and experts think that you should cover for gram positive and gram negative for uh, two to three days. Um, and so I, I guess I I just bring that up to, to ask both of you, is, is there any uh, recent publications that clarify that uh, even more uh, or are there studies on, on the way that are going to uh clarified the duration and type of coverage for for IV antibiotics.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the answer is yes to both of those questions. Um, I, I, you know, I think your first comment, uh, I completely agree with. Uh, the the topical antibiotics that I'm referring to are in addition to the systemic uh, you know IV antibiotics, uh, which I think is pretty well established now. the The other comments, I think, uh, in terms of duration, you know, we had our, our group um, with Mo's Mo's group had used the flow data to, to look at um sort of duration of antibiotics using uh, the OTA OFC sort of classification in terms of the contamination. And we found that you know, for severely contaminated wounds, uh, extending the antibiotic duration even beyond 72 hours seemed to be protective uh, against reoperation. So I think we're slowly making some progress. Uh, I, I think there's been, you know, the antibiotic stewardship sort of movement pushes back on us not thinking and not being critical and just leaving antibiotics on indefinitely. But I do think there are patients that have severely contaminated wounds that would probably benefit from a more thoughtful approach. And in those cases, perhaps extending antibiotics. So there, I think there is some evidence that's come out in the last uh, three years, I think that publication came out uh, that would support that. And then in terms of your second question about, you know, are there other studies coming out? I know the I know the metric group uh, and, and Mike Bossy, um, you know, I've been looking at trying to continue to tailor uh, the antibiotic, both duration and choice of antibiotics to to improve the outcomes, you know, both based on local and uh, local patterns and things like that. It's just I, it, I don't think it's a one size fits all. And that's really uh, hard to study then in a clinical trial. You know, um, oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead.
0: Well, uh, you know, just just the 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 whole issue of uh, uh, one one size doesn't fit all uh, just brings up the the recollection of the the issues with classification of open fractures, and I I go back to a classic study that Bob Brumbach did at the OTA meeting. Just showed a bunch of visi- videos of people debriding wounds and looked at the inter and intra rater. Uh, reliability of the classification and the kappa statistic was very poor, so that's really that's really one of the major uh, issues that remains today. Is that in in, in one center a a three A 3A is a is a is a type two, and in another center a three A is a three B, and uh, it depends on you know how how available is is a highly skilled microvascular surgeon, et cetera, et cetera, and I, I think that's a that's a real area that's going to be a struggle forever uh, in this 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 whole area. I, I don't know if you two agree with that.
1: Oh, for sure. Like when we did, you know, simple observational studies um, where we said, okay, what factors predict, let's say, reoperation in a tibial shaft fracture? Trying to decide whether it's a type one, type two, type three, A, B, or C. It was, you know, I mean, there was all kinds of variability. And what we found actually was, open. Period. Any open. Fracture, the fact that there is you know break in the skin uh, conferred some degree of additional complication and risk. And so and that was something we knew, OK, you someone can reliably make an assessment that there's, you know, an open fracture. They may not agree necessarily on the type specifically. Now, clearly, there's going to be gradients of, of, of challenge as you go up, but simply having an open fracture completely changes the trajectory for that individual patient. Um, which gets you back then to the idea of, you know, you've got this uh, issue of, you know, uh, Gerard, and this is the point, you know, around you. You've got an issue of, OK, you know, how quickly do you irrigate? What do you irrigate with? Um, you know, when you debride, how much do you do? Um, how quickly do you get them to the OR? What is your surgical technique? What type of implant do you use when do you, you know, wound closure? And, and so and then all the quote um, biological enhancement therapies. There's all these incremental steps and When you think about a program of trying to sort this out, is it simply just dealing with one step at a time? Do you prioritize one over the other? Do you pick the simplest or do you say let's tackle something that we think might actually be really important, but it's unlikely to be done if we don't do it collaboratively? And I speak to one issue, which is timing. But, you know, I'm curious what your take on this.
2: Um, Yeah, a lot. Lots to discuss there. Um, Yeah. I mean, maybe I'll, I'll backtrack a, a few few comments. You know, um, Dr. Swintowski, you, you mentioned sort of going through the JBS and seeing what was published recently. I think it's it's interesting, right? There hasn't been a lot published that is therapeutic. You know, there's some review articles, there's some systematic reviews, things like that, but we just really haven't produced really strong data in a long time, and and so that in itself – uh identifies a challenge and a problem. And then Mo, you know, to your point, um, how do you incrementally pick off these things? I, I think you and I uh, share a similar philosophy. Uh, thankfully, you, you trained me. So I mean, hopefully we do share some uh, similar philosophies. But, you know, I'm a very big fan of simple uh, interventions that can be easily implemented, widely disseminated, and, and hopefully aren't uh, too costly. So that has been my bigger interest in terms of how to how to um, pick off some of those those issues, when it comes to you know I think I think uh, Mo again you know you really pioneered um, the the large RCT and and even some of the factorial stuff I think is great innovation, and I, I would like us to continue. So can
1: you explain can you explain the word factorial to some because I think some might not understand what that means. Sure.
2: Yeah. So you know as, as you mentioned the one. The one trial studying one thing at a time uh, is very time uh, time costly, <laughs> financial costly, and and it really only allows us to answer a few things at a at a, at a um, per trial. And so, a factorial design is is an ability or an, a study design that allows you to test more than one intervention um, with the underlying assumption that they that the two don't interact together. And so that by doing so, you can put the two different interventions uh, in the same trial and essentially analyze them almost like two separate trials within one. So uh, it's, it's a lot more efficient. Uh, It only increases the sample size uh, sort of marginally uh, and doesn't require two separate trials. So I, you know, I think that was a huge innovation. That's what was done in flow. Um, But still now we're only testing two interventions, you know, and, and so if we are either able to get to more efficient Uh, large clinical trials, or get better at some of the causal observational uh, study designs. I think we may be able to um, sort of more rapidly test things. But, you know, causal inference has so many problems um, at its root, you know, it's still maybe the best we can do, but it has a lot of uh, challenges. And so uh, the trial, I think, still remains the the gold standard. Um, And then, sorry, go ahead, Mo. No, I was going to say that, you know, to that point, you know, the, the
1: Lancet Commission in, on Global Surgery had this statement, you know, pretty bold one, right? Saying, you know, among some of the bellwether procedures globally that can improve life, the managed rapid treatment of open fractures is one of them. And in fact, they make the argument that, you know, they, they would like to see a world in which open injuries around the world get initial treatment, however we call the initial treatment within two hours, somehow Um, This group has determined that timing does indeed matter, where if you look at the series of observational studies, um, prognostic studies, you wouldn't necessarily get that same impression. I mean, there's quite a bit of variability there, George. And I wonder if that is an area for someday a a target the same way, you know, you've seen hip fractures being, you know, in, in the same scrutiny of can earlier care lead to better outcomes.
2: Yeah, I, I think the challenge there is, you know, you get to get away with using the word care or treatment, but <laughs> the investigator <laughs> has to be very specific about which part of that care or treatment they want to in- investigate. And um, th- that's challenging, you know, and you, yeah. you look at the, the in-training exams, I, I as far as I know, the, the correct answer still is quality of debridement and then, yeah, right. about, you know, maybe timing of antibiotics and I think as the literature is perhaps starting to show, both of those may be correct, depending on which which uh, clinical scenario you're talking about. You know, if there's tons and tons of dead bone and contamination, whatever the the timing of debridement may matter. But if it's just sort of your average three A three B, whatever that means, I suspect uh, timing is less important. As long as it's done within a reasonable time period and, and lowering the bacterial burden through antibiotics is probably more important
1: well I'll, I'll i'll just say the mere fact that you work and you call a 3b an average 3b tells you you work at Shock trauma. I can tell you right now, there's not too many people in the community walking. Ah, just an average <laughs> three v <So, you> know. <laughs> Just, just an observation, Gerard. Just an observation.
0: <laughs> yeah, Gerard. As you mentioned, uh, there hasn't really been a lot of new uh, primary evidence published, and and there, there again, here again, uh, you're correct in my review. So there, another really strong meta-analysis done by a very large global open fracture collaboration was published in the journal in 2020. 84 studies in a meta-analysis and identified that based on that high quality literature review, again, based at McMaster, the critical threshold seems to be 12 hours. So uh, as best as we can from the literature today, that seems to be the reasonable uh, time for a higher grade type three open fracture. Anything different that, you, that you've seen on that? No, and
2: and I've, I've seen that paper as well and um... I, you know, it's the usual, right? I am just so suspicious of residual confounding. Mm-hmm. I, I clinically believe that result, but I just know that, you know, for example, at my institution, both for time to debridement and time to flap coverage, yeah, we're, we're going to get all of our patients debrided in less than 12 hours. We're going to get all of our flaps done within 72 hours or covered, mm-hmm. you know, certainly within 24, 72 hours of definitive fixation except the patients that are so sick that can't make it to the OR. And we see that, um, I don't want to say frequently, but regularly, you know? And so I just know that in our institution, there is massive confounding that that I'll never be able to get rid of because the patients that aren't getting to the OR in those sorts of timeframes are extremely sick. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, and, and, and when you look at sort of in the more austere environments where you don't have access, right, I mean, transport to definitive care is a big problem. That's where I think some of the work you've been doing and maybe we'll ask you to share a little bit about that, you know, we, which is the type of irrigation, you know getting early uh, antibiotics put into that patient right at the scene. those kind of things I think will give you that extra window of opportunity where potential you know a definitive care can be delayed somewhat. I think it's the absence of any care uh, that certainly is the real challenge. and uh, you know in one of these places we've got to find some of these quote, as you say, frugal interventions. Um, that can help. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to your ongoing uh, program of research, the Prepit uh, program, just for those who may not be aware. I think most probably interested in the area know about it, but uh, for those who haven't, it might be interesting to hear about what you're up to.
2: Sure. Uh, so uh, PREP-IT, as you describe it, is a, is a program. It's two large sister uh, trials uh, led by uh, Sheila Sprague and myself and and you, <laughs> if, if you recall, Mo. Um, uh, you, you've you actually have provided quite a bit of seminal uh, expertise and, and guidance for us. But um, this trial is coordinated in McMaster and and uh, a collaborative effort across Uh, North America and and Spain. And what it is is two sister trials comparing the common um, antiseptics of chlorhexidine and uh, iodine-based or iodophores. And it is both in open fractures and closed fractures. It also includes the aqueous-based solutions and the alcohol-based solutions. And when you look at sort of the Cochrane review on this topic, uh, it really did call for that sort of factorial uh, analysis and we we even considered doing a factorial design of you know the alcohol based ones and the non-alcohol based ones but um, decided to go for separate separate trials. Uh, so we are we've exceeded 10,000 patients enrolled. Um, the enrollment is wrapping up uh, in under four weeks. Uh, you know and and we're quite happy with it. You know the primary outcome obviously is surgical site infection. Uh, which we've been able to maintain well over 90% follow up and um, you know the McMaster group and Sheila Sprague and all of our um, collaborators have really uh, just done a phenomenal job on that trial and so, you know, we're going to answer that primary question right does iodine or, or chlorhexidine make a difference in surgical site infections and, and non-union reoperations. But as you point out, this will provide a lot of other opportunities to look at, you know, time to debridement, uh, topical antibiotics, uh, other, other co-interventions that people that we know are may have a, a benefit. And um, we'll see, you know, 10,000 patients is a lot of patients. Flow is a huge number of patients. And, you know, this is going to be a little bit bigger that will hopefully we can combine even with flow data and just continue to to get better and better data sources to try and answer some of these difficult questions.
0: Can I just ask, how are you dealing with the the classification question uh, in that trial? Are are you taking pictures, or how, how are you how are you dealing with it?
2: Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, so you know, first of all, the misclassification, if you will, right? You know, the the potential for misclassification. I think. Um, gets gets knocked out right you know it's a it's a randomized trial so the i expect the misclassification to be equally balanced you know yeah. in equal amount of noise on both sides it we are using um the classification to stratify for one of our subgroup analyses um, but as far as i recall it's basically uh ones and twos versus you know uh three uh threes right so it we're using it sort of at the dichotomous level and i'm hopeful that that level of classification can give us a a good enough sort of uh trustworthy classification but again you know we're that is just a subgroup and um you know i'm I'm hopeful that the the noise will be equal on both sides of that yeah
1: can i oh i don't know i just have a, a a an Mark, I have a general broad question that's unrelated to open fractures, but if you have an open fracture question, I'm happy for you to jump in because mine's but, a bit more of a tangent.
0: Uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll let you go last, but uh, okay. my my last uh, question for Gerard is, uh, so there there's likely people listening to this podcast or viewing this video that are in community practice. So if you could just summarize with your extensive knowledge of uh, what we know to this state, how would uh, a surgeon best manage let's just say it's it's clear type 3b open fracture that shows up in a community hospital what are the essential evidence-based recommendations as we know them today let's say a, a tibia type 3b middle third fracture how should that be managed today
2: yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll see if I can go through it as, as sequentially as, as possible, because I do think there are a lot of uh, decisions to be made. Um, so, you know, right right from the time of the uh, patient's presentation, I do think that uh, antibiotics should be started as early as possible. And I think that that basically should just be a a, a cephalosporin, you know, ANSEF. If there is any concerns for contamination, um, and particularly if it's an isolated um, type three injury, I think you know adding gentamicin or aminoglycoside is is very reasonable, and and I probably would do that if there's any if there's any contamination. You might wanna be a little uh, cautious if you have a multi-trauma patient that's under-resuscitated to minimize your acute uh, kidney injury risk. But if, if it's sort of isolated injury, well-resuscitated and contamination, I would add an aminoglycoside. In terms of the uh, the ED wound management, um, I per- personally prefer uh, sort of betadine soaked soap dressing. I don't know that there's strong evidence for that. Uh, and then splint. In terms of the time to debridement, I think that you should, you know, debride these fractures as, as soon as possible. However, I, I still am a fan of the balance between midnight, you know, in middle of the night surgery where you have uh, assistance that may not be uh, facile and all the things that you need, and you may be more prone to cutting corners, uh, to be honest, right, we're human. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, debridement within 12 hours is, is very reasonable. The, the other two parts that I think are worth talking about sort of intraoperatively are, well, how much of a debridement is required, uh, particularly because a lot of people still believe the quality of the debridement is the number one factor. I am a little less uh, skeptical, or I'm a little more skeptical skeptical about that. I do not favor massive excisional tumor-style debridements. Um, you have to get gross contamination out. and. Um, I think that this is an area where we may have some innovation, you know, Leah Gaton in, uh, at Dartmouth is doing a lot of laser angiography, um, spy type stuff to try and assess what may be viable. And that may be an objective way for us to better understand what is viable tissue and what's not. Uh, so look, look for her research and, and other similar research like that. Um, but I think you need to do a, a, an appropriate debridement. You shouldn't be afraid of doing a debridement that creates too large of a hole because, I think most of these injuries require good robust uh, soft tissue coverage, and uh, hopefully your your flappist can help you in that regard. And then the the other part that I think is probably important that the data is getting better, but still not perfect on this is the time to flap coverage in relation, I think it's in relation to the um, the definitive fixation. I think it's less important about the um, the time from injury, but I don't think you should definitively fix something and then leave your hardware sitting in the breeze for days. So you know, I uh, we try and plan that at least within 24 hours, if not on the same day. And then and then the last part is just the duration of antibiotics afterwards. Uh, certainly, for th- most three Bs, 24 hours of antibiotics I think are fine. Again as the contamination level goes up i would consider 72 hours and as it really goes up i would consider even like five days or even seven days in the very rare occasions when you're really dealing with
0: bad bad contamination that was outstanding thanks very much now mo you're up
1: sure you know and the truth is even after all of that meticulous care gerard you know we still haven't solved the the issue of the complex open fracture which i think we started off with And I think we're going to solve these fractures when we have surgeon scientists like yourself um, engaging and inspiring sort of the next generation of surgeon scientists. Can you speak a little bit about to just what it takes uh, from your perspective, um, you know, in in having pursued this area? And, you know, if you're making your pitch to others who are on the fence about, you know, maybe a senior resident could be a fellow thinking, you know, do I do, do I go in this direction? Do I get additional advanced training? Uh, What's your pitch to that person um, about the, you know, sort of the satisfying aspects of this thing, but it's, you know, it's not easy.
2: Yeah, I actually didn't expect that question, uh, but thanks for this opportunity because I I do have strong feelings about it and I I think it's it's, uh, really important. So, I'm truly humbled to be on this podcast with you guys. And and Mo, I know when you were getting started, you reached out to to Mark uh, for mentorship, and and, uh, I reached out to you for mentorship. And uh, I think it's only possible for us to do good things when you're already standing on the shoulders of another giant. And so, I just, you know, I I truly implore any any young surgeons that are interested in doing really high quality research, you, you can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. Mo couldn't do it on his own. You can't do it on your own. So you got to seek good mentors that have a track record of doing good, good quality research. And I think at the very least, the mentorship and sort of trying to plug in with people that have done this before is most important. After that, I think, you know, getting advanced training is is also extremely important. You know, we, we have the OTA and all these other scientific meetings that we do. Uh, and there's a large portion of that that's research related. Yet most people spend very little time learning research or even sort of continuing education in research. Yet we have journal clubs, you know, we go to AO courses, and all these other things to continue to keep our surgical skills up. So if you want to be a good researcher, you have to continue to keep your research skills up. So I think that's really important. And then, you know, I think if you look at the big picture of where orthopedics is in terms of federal funding, NIH, and things like that, um, for those of you that don't know the U.S. system, we're in, in an institute called NIAMS, which is, you know, musculoskeletal based, but it's also dermatology and, and rheumatology and things like that. And we really don't have the resources that these other Uh, disciplines do because and and we have our our burden like is way way higher than than theirs and and so I think we need to get better at organizing as a as a group in in terms of getting these uh, resources available looking for centers and things like that that can provide more training more consortiums more opportunities and and uh, you know McMaster has been a a huge leader in that and again mo i really appreciate all the mentorship you've given me metric has been trying to sort of grow a you know a robust consortium and there's a lot of other consortiums that are growing from from the younger generation as well and I think that we just need to continue to find ways to support that through uh, through legitimate funding and and I know um, Dr Swintowski and the JBGS has been working with other centers um, you know I recently heard about the collaboration with the Total Joint uh, Core Center and stuff like that and so I think I think other disciplines are are making it even in orthopedics and for ortho trauma we have really big, unique challenges. You know, the injuries aren't the same, they're unpredictable, et cetera. And so we have to get better at providing the best available evidence. And we may not always be able to do it in a nice, clean RCT. And so we have to learn how to do that.
0: Well, yeah. I just uh, want to thank you, Gerard, for an outstanding uh, interview for Ortho Joe, And, and I'm, I'm convinced that uh, the, the world of a patient with open fracture is going to be a much, much better place in the future. Thanks to your work and your energy, and and to Moes uh, for uh, bringing you along and and then turning you loose uh, with this uh, problem. So so thanks, and we we hope that you'll enjoy your your cup. Uh, it's it's very useful, and uh, particularly on a on a day when you haven't had much sleep. So thanks very much, <laughs> and all the best.
1: All right. Thanks again. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Mark. Yeah.